0: Hello oh, everyone, so our Reg teaching today is an approach to adnexal masses. So mainly Angela's going to talk about surgical approaches in the second half of the presentation. So I was just going to start off by giving a general overview of masses. Oh yeah, just sure, hold it. Yeah. A um, general overview of adnexal masses and a recap. So that's my part. Um, so just as an introduction, adnexal mass is really common. Um, there's a wide kind of differential diagnosis, which we'll touch on a bit later. Um, we see in women of all ages, um, and just to touch upon later as part of our evaluation, the things I thought about were initially you know, determining whether this is an acute condition needs um, urgent operation, so I'm thinking ectopic soviary and torsion, um, thinking about um, identifying what the probable etiology is, and then we'll talk about that a bit later, um, and then thinking about whether this is benign or malignant, and whether it needs further imaging or... Um, surgical intervention at that stage. And then, just as mentioned there, the risk of malignancy, um, particularly in postmenopausal women with adnexal mass, the risk of ovarian cancer is higher um, increases with age. And so, I've just um, put some s- stats there as well. Um, so, pretty much kind of already touched upon that but as part of the general evaluation. So, for us, when we're assessing someone with adnexal mass, Things I've thought about was um, initially thinking, is this an acute condition that needs something acutely operated on, Um, what's our probable um, etiology, differential diagnosis, and that can be based on kind of our history, our clinical presentation, the age of the patient um, imaging, and we'll touch upon that later, and then determining whether this is likely to to be benign or malignant. Um, as well. And as part of our evaluation for anything in medicines, part of that is about history, about exam, about ordering further investigations, and then what we'll do based on that. Um, So this is just to say, to show that there's a lot of um, wide kind of etiology out there for adnexal masses, Um, and this is just a table I took from Ranscog. Um, And it just shows that most of them are ovarian origin, but they can also be coming from surrounding tissues like your fallopian tube and other tissues. Um, Can also be coming from other pelvic organs, so appendicitis as well, appendiceal abscesses on there as well. And then just um, that there can also be ovarian and malignant, and those are the ones we don't want to miss. Um, so I've just got a table here on kind of age and reproductive status, um, and just to say that um, knowing the age of the patient can also give us some hints about um, what the probable etiology of agnexal masses would be. So this is just kind of a general overview. Um, just to say that um, there are some agnexal masses that are more likely depending on what your age is and also what your reproductive status is. So. Um, in children and our adolescents, um, adnexal masses are less common here than our reproductive women, but if they had a, um, if there wasn't mass, then the likelihood of torsion and malignancy is slightly higher, and our germ cell tumors are more common in this age group. And then in our premenopausal women, most of these adnexal masses are benign. They're usually associated with our menstrual cycle or our hormones, so that's like our physiological cysts here. And then any pregnant woman with a mass, we need to exclude an ectopic pregnancy, but also um, corpus luteal cysts and um, thecoluteensis are also common in pregnancy as well. And in our postmenopausal women with a mass, that's when um, our risk of malignancy is higher, and so these are the women that we need to be able to exclude that's not malignant. Um, and so for history, um, so for this part, I thought for it to be more interactive, <laughs> um, just wondering if anyone can give some ideas about things they would ask, um, particularly in regards to annexal masses, what are the symptoms you're looking for, particular questions you would ask, and yes, why would you be asking them? Pain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. to the pain, sudden or gradual? Yep. Duration of the symptoms, like how long
1: have
2: experienced
1: the pain for?
0: associated symptoms, do they have abdominal bloating, do they have weight loss, are any constitutional symptoms, pretty much so, I'm just going to say, so yeah, so we talked about sudden onset, worried about torsion, worried about cis accidents, um, where you are in your cycle, um, symptoms associated with endometriosis, dysmenorrhea, and then um, fevers, PV dish, I think your TOAs, and then the non-specific GI symptoms that Esther mentioned. Um, so your bloating, your weight loss, your anorexia. Um, maybe suggestive of, you know, of your malignancy, particularly in a post-menopausal woman, so something just to be aware of. And then lastly, I just um, added family history there, just because we know that, um People who've got a family history of ovarian cancer, they've got increased risk of getting it, particularly if they've had a breast colon or like Lynch syndrome as well in their family. And that lifetime risk um, can be up to 10% for these women. And then again, just for examination, um, what things would you be particularly looking for and why? So it'd be assessing the abdomen, palpate for presence of a mass, assess
2: where the pain is, whether there's signs and symptoms, peritonism, to suggest acute abdomen. Yeah. By manual examination. Yeah, I've so got that. For that. Yeah. Um, so observations. Yep. Yeah. Stability of the patient. Yep. cool.
0: So I'm just going to, so pretty much I've said that. So I've said bimanual rectovaginal exam. We talked about divinal palpation, fevers, um, looking for like tender ligaments or nodules um, in a premenopausal woman that may be situated of endometriosis, but in a postmenopausal woman that may be such of something suspicious. And then... Um, in the postmenopausal woman, shouldn't be able to palpate an ovary, but if you can and it's unilateral, it's enlarged, again, that might be suspicious, um, a suspicious finding as well. I don't think I've ever palpated an ovary. <laughs> <laughs> I've <laughs> just written it like there. A, a nude ovary. If it's like <laughs> super enlarged.
1: Yeah,
0: cool. No, no um, and then investigations, very um, straightforward, okay. I'm just going to skip it. So, beta HCG, our blood tests, our tumour markers. And then I've kind of talked about um, ultrasound features as our primary imaging modality. So um, I guess my question is, what are the features of, you know, malignancy and ultrasound that you would be looking out for? Sexation societies, yep.
2: non Vascularity.
0: Yep. it's
1: bilateral,
0: yep. solid. Yep. Yeah, so I've got all of those. So simple cysts, um, they're there, malignant, solid components, increased vascularity, thick wall septations. I put size there, but that's not always true. And then associated size is there as well. Um, Can I a question? You know when GPs refer um, to gynae
1: clinic, they've done a CA-125 for non-specific symptoms and it's elevated. <laughs> And they've had a power culture sound scan which shows that which has shown their index is normal. What is the what is the approach to this? I know that we can repeat the CA125s. We assess for fibroids and endo and other things that could cause the CA125 to be elevated. But at what point is it okay to say, okay, they might have some endo that's from endo? Are there levels of CA125 that people would then get CTs and MRIs Or like that judgment call I find really difficult and I find is often managed quite differently mm. in different clinics, and I I find oh it a God. really hard situation. And I've had a handful of them, and I mm. don't
3: feel comfortable with the management of any of them. You know? Yeah, I think we often chase results that are really non-specific, mm. but I would just go with clinical findings. So, mm. I mean, I think it's reasonable to repeat, um, like in three to six months' time, mm. like if they otherwise well, and if they're still kind of non-specific elevated and you probably i would you know you do with the right thing and then just reassure them and then just chatting back to their gp with you know warning something in size. but if they have um, risks um, if they have findings suggested of endo and they've had like long history of pain and things i wouldn't sit on then i would offer them a diagnostic. Cisco yeah. yeah yeah
1: and if you do have cancer you mm-hmm. see a one two five six, be increasing over time. It would be very
3: high, right. normally. And so these so come a of 50,
1: 100, 200 sort of CA yeah. 1935s, if they're still 100 6 months later, that's mm. so a reassuring really fact. Yeah, I'd say Because so.
0: hmm.
1: you're thinking yeah. like if it's primary peritoneal
2: rather than ovarian, you're not going to see an ovarian mass, but you might see something on a CT. like. Mental kicking mm. or something, so yeah, how do you know you shouldn't be doing CTs on these? On the I guess wall. the thing is, like, you know, half of the stage one cancers don't have a CA125, mm. do they? So yeah. you've got to think about You know, it's not really any different to seeing one with a normal CA125, yeah. no worries. Mm. Yeah, it's just puts in a
1: sort of mm. situation. It is, hey, so you wouldn't necessarily CT your email address. no? Yeah, in the
3: first instance, I mean, I've had a couple in my clinic um, that came from other. And I think those ones had like a small adnexal mass, um, and so we're following them up with ultrasound and C1 to 5. So I'm due to C1 back but you know the, the ultrasound was normal the last time, C1 to 5 was slightly abnormal. Yeah. So probably if the next one is fine then I'll discharge it back to the yeah. GP. Yeah. Okay. Let them know, don't do it. <laughs> 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 <It's>, don't <laughs> mean, I've got to a pregnant
2: woman with a D-dime
3: or a 5,000. It's like, Yeah. Okay, thank
2: yeah.
0: you. Cool. All right. Um, I think there's just two more slides to go. Um. So management, I've kind of talked about pre-menopausal and post-menopausal as different managements. Um. And so... Oops. Um, so I know different guidelines have kind of different management stuff. So this is just something I took from the RANSCOG guidelines. And so for this particular one um, from Ranscore, what that's what they've suggested, is that um, symbols says less than five, they don't need follow-up because they're usually physiological, they will self-resolve. Up to seven, they've um, recommend repeat ultrasounds. Um, at that stage, if it was increasing in size, then you would op, um, consider operation. And then any symbols says greater than seven centimetres, um, considering further investi- uh, imaging. And um, surgery prevention at that stage. And then if at any stage the cyst enlarges or is persistent or there's um, um, uh, other suspicious features or symptomatic, then you would um, consider surgery at that stage as well. And then lastly for postmenopausal, again, um, this is something I took from Ranscog, and so what they've done is um, split it into like low-risk and high-risk malignancy based on the RMI score. And so they've said um, RMI less than 200, low-risk malignancy. If it's a simple system ultrasound with those features, then you can consider a repeat assessment in four to six months with a transvaginal scan, a clinical review, a repeat of CA125. And if any of those have become abnormal in that instance, then you would consider an operation then. But if you've got a low-risk RMI, um, uh, low-risk malignancy with complex cyst with any of those features, then we'd be considering operation anyone with high RMI scores um, those are people you want to be thinking to rely on malignancy and so you would be thinking about CT scanning referring to gyneal oncology um, and surgical intervention um, and I think Who finds the
3: RMI um, a little bit vague sometimes? sometimes? Yeah. Do you ever use the it? Like, I find that more useful especially if it's a really large cyst and seeing one to 5 is you know like 200 but it's otherwise simple looking yeah and and it just helps differentiate between like you know normal like just benign Versus like borderline or like advanced cancer, like you know, it gives you a few more percentages, and I find it more helpful. It I does think, rely I on a good ultrasound, report, yes, it <laughs> does. Yeah, yeah I does.
2: think for referral to going using RMI, but it seems like clinically for Clinically, so yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. We had a lady the other week who had really complex looking cyst, mm. a normal CA one two five, but really high in nineteen nine. Mm-hmm. So like you know, obviously mm-hmm. suspicious for like a mm-hmm. mm-hmm. or something like that. But it doesn't
3: doesn't warrant discussion because based of based on that, mm-hmm. I'm based on that, yeah. yeah. Okay, so I thought I'd keep it pretty practical, because um, you can always read textbooks and <laughs> I don't know, go to like Z horses, but um, maybe just some tips, that, tips and tricks that might be useful. Um, so it's still downloading. And in, in the middle, I've got a really funny video to show you. It's really useful, but like, <laughs> it's really old-fashioned. <laughs> I found <it> on YouTube. <laughs> it's um, so It's just so sort of funny. I um, um, realized that I just had videos. Yeah. yeah. Videos? So, yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's probably quite useful. Online. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 like, yeah, it? like, just like, and
1: like, stuff like that.
2: Yeah. yeah.
3: It's good. Yeah, it's and really formal like too. Yeah, yeah.
2: ages
3: So, so a mix of messes come in different shapes and sizes and types. Um that's my oh. doll Yogi. And oh. yeah, oh. he's a spoodle. He's like eighteen kilos now, but when their photo was taken, was five kilos. So cute. He's <laughs> <laughs> <It's>
2: so, <laughs> so
3: cute. <laughs> oh, yeah. Doesn't photograph yeah, very really well because he's yeah. like <laughs> it's yeah. just yeah.
2: like where's his eyes? Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs>
3: okay. the beady eyes. Okay, so um. I'm just gonna talk about a few different types of uh, nexal masses. Um, and I thought you might be interested in maybe management of like the large and giant ones because like I think especially at this unit you know, I found um, there's like like a seems to be like a pervasive rule of oh if it's like more than ten centuries and doing more then we must do a laparotomy or you know, like you know these sort of sentiments like that. So I just kinda wanted to <laughs> give the alternative views. Um, and then A few other things like um, torsion, um, if the patient is pregnant, um, if it's really stuck, like endometrioma or TOA, um, just management principles. Um, And also the question that Sam asked um, when he asked me to do this talk was, when do we switch up an ovary? So for suspension or when do we put it back together? So there's a video on that um, that you might find helpful. Okay, so mainly this talk covers benign um, adnexal masses and, you know, the type that you get a letter back from gynae or PMDM and they're like, well, oh, do you know guy, I need to do this bit? Even though it might not look very benign, but they want you to do it, so you could do it. Um, or if a patient presents with acute pain and you want to do something about their adnexal mass. so. First and foremost, um, really, really important to have a game plan um, even before you get into theatre. We, we all know this, so make sure you review the patient and the clinical findings carefully. Make sure you've reviewed the investigations, look at the pictures, and I think communication is probably the most important thing. Um, who's found like uh, We've all found we go to theatre and we need something, we need an instrument, but they haven't got it. And you have to scramble to get it mid case, everyone's getting frustrated, patients bleeding, or something like that. We've all been there, right? (laughs) So, one way to avoid that is just plan it really well, Um, and you can plan for it even when you have an acute case. And usually, everyone's pretty happy to help as long as they've had some time to, you know, they've had some morning. And also, always have a backup plan, whether it's a backup colleague, um, whether it's opening up and having the set ready. I'm um, just make sure if one way doesn't work, you know, what's my next step going to be. So I mean, I like I like small <laughs> holes. <laughs> so this is sort of a geared towards laparoscopy, but you can always make a bigger hole. It's safe. Um you can you just do what whatever is the best for the patient. So it doesn't have to be don't persevere if it's gonna be like a three hour case and you don't have the right equipment and you know the patient is under for Asians, and you know that's not without risk as well so just do whatever is the most clinically appropriate at the time. So general principles, um, make sure you're uh, familiar with pelvic sidewall anatomy especially when you're dealing with nexal masses and um, I thought I'd just maybe go around the room and ask um, you know those of of us that have done like an oophorectomy or um, like a USO, um, how you normally do that? It's... Jay, take it away! <laughs> <laughs> how would you do it? Like, how like would you like
2: do a, normally do it? And... So yeah. you identify your structures first. So I usually try and identify the round ligament first and uh, then the tube by the fimbrial end make sure you know the difference because that's very important and sometimes it's hard when it's all stuck to everything. And then um, open up the broad ligament, make a window in the broad ligament anterior and posteriorly, um, find your IP ligament and where it attaches to the pelvic side wall, make sure you clear up the ureter, isolate the IP ligament through your broad ligament window and clamp it, cut it tight. Well, that's if it's open, if it's up, um, <laughs> if it's through a small hole, then we'd use an advanced
3: bipolar like a liver shore, or you could bipolar it as a. Do you always do it that way, or have you been taught to just hug the ovary and just do it that way? Um, yeah.
2: some yeah, some people do, but I don't like it. I like being able to see the ovary. Yeah, it
3: just freaks me out. I hope yeah. <laughs> if you have time and yeah. you've got you've got if your mentors you yeah. know also comfortable with it. Yeah, i um, always just. It by opening the pelvic sidewall um, yeah. and then isolate the IP, just skeletonize it so that you're not cutting a big chunk of tissue with the peritoneum um, and the IP. So isolate that, have the ureter in good view, and then yeah. um, and then double yeah.
2: ligate. And it's like blatantly obvious, and you can yeah. see the ureter yeah. through the pelvic sidewall. You don't have to yeah. open it. That's fine. Yeah. But like sometimes, like the other day, we just had a woman that had recurrent. Um, PID
3: and TOAs and she had very thick peritoneum and just couldn't see through it and so we had to go looking for it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just good practice and it just helps with eye coordination so whenever possible just yeah, spend some time just having a look and lifting tissue up, moving it in a few different directions and then um, identify structures. Um, Keep the junk contained, we know this, (laughs) so especially if it's dermoid and it's Shit coming out. Sorry. <laughs> um, you need to make sure it's contained, um, and there's a few different ways of doing that and we can go over that later. Um, also, it's really hard. To, really sometimes it's really difficult to keep track of how much um, bleeding has occurred, especially if you're in the heat of the moment and if you're task focused um, and you just you're trying to peel off the cyst or something, and all the while there's oozing, the pelvis is filling up with blood. Um, so that's you can end up losing a lot of blood, especially if it's an endometrioma or a really vascular structure. So I would recommend to just keep an eye on the bleeding and control it as you go. So with the bipolar or you could even use ligashore or monopolar energy to just buzz little bleeding vessels as you go. And then the surgical field is clear and um, you know you haven't ended up with like a 500-minute blood loss at the end. Um, and um, as Debbie mentioned, um, when they're postmenopausal, increased risk of it being um, malignant as well compared to premenopausal. So, um, if even for acute operations, um, as we know, unilateral, um, self fingerectomy, or bilateral um, rather than susceptomy, unless they feel really strongly about keeping the ovary. Um, cool, and also think about how you're going to get the thing out of your pelvis so this is sort of my approach and those of you that's worked with me a little bit before um will know that i'm a really big fan of pelvis point entry um, who's who's done one with me yeah okay so it's really helpful to know because um Hassan entry like it's really good to have a few different options in mind um but can't really do Hassan entry up here um so either having like a direct optical entry or with a various entry obviously with the stomach empty um will help get a better overview of the public structure especially if it's a large cyst so and i'll give you an example that debbie and i did two or three days ago mm. yeah two, two days ago maybe? yeah yeah monday yeah um talk to me about port configurations um, which ones have you used which ones have you found useful um, Watch instance you know, so your core placement choices. Whether yes. you're going to suture or not, like what kind of angles you need. Yeah. If you're doing a
2: hystric, for
3: example. Yeah. Say you're doing an ectopic, so one of the most common operations that we do, where would you put your ports?
2: Yeah.
3: Well, like which ones are you comfortable with? Like, are you so a i bit the same sided ports on
2: yeah. my side, yeah. and then your umbilical. Un- well.
3: Yeah.
2: See, so I'm probably most used to having a super pubic and a my side and then the, um, like a right or the really positive side, but I've decided I don't really like it because it's not very organically great on your shoulder. Mm. Mm. I find mm. it easier, yeah. like for the operation, but it's too uncomfortable as well. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think we're not that huge people and compared to the people here, and so it can be quite a big distance. Yeah. Mm. That's the issue yeah. that I find at the moment that my shoulder
1: gets tight. Yeah, Esther? Um, I mean I've just done the, <coughs> the boss on the day tells me to do it, and I've done it a few times, with the two, it's electricals, and every time, it was super cool um, and I haven't done enough to work in it bit fancy. Yeah, I just find I can't go backwards
2: towards, tour, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, yeah. like <laughs> when you're going back up towards the, with you're with really confused, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. like yeah. a bit of a mind. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Like it it's fine a if it's a close, but, you know, specimen. if you lose the specimen at yeah. the other end and you end
3: up turning the camera around, that, oh, yeah. I don't have any tips for that, do you know what I mean, like, watching i yeah. like, oh. So, I think if you're going to be using the super supercubic port, um, I mean, there's a few different ways of holding it, but um, one way which a lot of people use is to use their right arm and right hand for the super cubic.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: and then have the screen the monitor in between patient's legs so you are sort of holding it and looking at it. You know, basically you don't want to screen your neck, you just want to basically protect your neck and make sure you're not doing too much abduction because that's really tiring for your shoulders and you've got a long career ahead of you. So just um, if it doesn't feel right then um, just stop what you're doing and make sure you're as comfortable as possible before you you know, proceed. Um, the other way, and I do it if I'm using the cubic, the diamond configuration is to have two screens. So one for you to look at on patient's right, just by the feet, um, and then the other one for your assistant. And yeah, using my left hand for the cubic, but I hold the grasper, I twist it. Oh, do we have a grasper here? yeah. No. No. no, no. I sort of hold the grasper handle the other way around so I don't have to add up so much.
1: Yeah. Oh
3: yeah,
2: I know what you mean. I yeah. Sort of upside
3: down. Upside like
1: down.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. 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 Kind of
3: like hold it in your left Yeah, kind of that like way. that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that takes a bit of practice, but I found um, I found that that's much better for my shoulders. Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah, try it a few different ways, but I would say ipsilateral is probably the most ergonomically um, comfortable position. Um, but for suturing, probably the most comfortable would be like like the best triangulation is if you use the left and the right eye leg fossa, but not many people do that. Um, yeah, that's how I like. That's how I learnt to suture. But yeah. then,
2: if it's difficult and taking for ages, it's really not working yeah. that way right on the what
3: mm. distance do you put your ipsilateral? Yeah. Um, about control, eight like, centimeters eight. apart. So just yeah, just maybe four finger breadths. Yeah, yeah. And in about the same level, but it can be a little bit lateral maybe, or Just um, yeah, maybe have a feel for, you know, how it's going to be. And if, when you put the port in, um, just making sure that once it goes through the peritoneum, the port is facing towards the pelvis, rather than facing up to the liver. Mm. Um, especially if you're doing a long case, and if you are using ipsilateral ports, then you're going to be hitting the ports unless they are facing mm-hmm. to the pelvis, yeah. Okay, um, so yeah, so try a few different ways, um, find out what works for you, um, it will be different for all of us. Um, and especially if you're wanting to remove the specimen under direct vision, um, it's really a good idea to have a smaller camera available. So I always have a 5mm and a 10mm available for my set. Um, because I, you know, use it interchangeably, especially if I'm doing a palmer's point then. I'll normally put a 5mm port up in the left upper quadrant, uh, but then if the peri umbilical area is free of adhesions and you want to get closer to the pathology, especially if it's like, you know, right just in the pelvis, then I'll just switch to a 30mm and a 10mm port at the umbilicus. so cystectomies, tell me how you do your cystectomies. Inside the wall
2: and then yeah. try and shower it out essentially without spilling but I think it, the way you do it probably depends on what you think it is. You know, if you think it's a simple cyst then you're not going to be so concerned about yeah, yeah. Yes. spilling or draining first yeah. if you need to. Yeah. also the size will depend on how you want to. And,
3: and what glasses do you use to peel it all? And yes. like then yeah. well, just, yeah. yeah. just, just slip off Yeah, yeah. Yeah, is yeah. yeah, by far the best I found. So I you know, if I'm gonna be doing yeah, so if it's like dermoid or um endometrialized, yeah, often I saw two pairs and then you can hold. Mm-hmm. And traction, counter traction, and then it peels off much easier. And most of the time you can just do it yourself without an assistant. Sometimes I find it better because then you know exactly how much pressure mm-hmm. you're applying to the other side of the cyst and then you can control it better. But if it's a bigger cyst, um, and if you want your system to do something, <laughs> they can hold um, with you know dolphin or like a bowel grasp or something um, to do that. But if you are peeling, um, tooth grasp Yeah, sort out the bleeding as you go. Okay, so if the cyst is really small, um, it's less than five centimetres, but there's a clinical reason to do the surgery, then yeah, we would all agree that Usually, we just try it laparoscopically. Um, any questions about this and or how you might manage these conditions when it's small? No. Yeah, if you have a really small sample size, would
1: you always try and
2: get the capsule, the
3: full size capsule? Uh, yeah, yeah. I try to remove this as whole. Um so. And it's, it's good for the hand-eye coordination too, to try and not, even if it's simple, just to make a really, like I normally use a monopolar hook and just a very thin, just go into the ovarian capsule and then try and peel it off um, so that it's whole and then it's, you know, it's not ruptured. It normally ruptures, but, you know, you, you can try and it's good practice. All right, let's <laughs> um, Yeah, and then I try not to leave any cysts there, if I can, unless it's very, very stuck, and digging into the um, base will just cause more bleeding. Um, you know, that's the only case that I wouldn't. Um, okay, so if it's like a medium-sized cyst, um, yeah, whether you do it laparoscopic or open, um, as I said before, um, I think it really depends on you know how comfortable you are and how unwell the patient is, and a few different factors. Um, but really important to Contain the tissue well. So, especially if it is um, bigger, like 10 centimeters, then it's reasonable really to try and rupture it in the bag. And um, so, have if your assistant port, so use your assistant port maybe to get the endo catch bag in and then scoop the cyst up in there, and then drain the cyst into the bag before pulling it out. Uh, makes Still sense. So then you need a 10 mil port? Yeah, on one of the sides. So yeah, and it's fine. Like, yeah. yeah, as long as you close the defect afterwards, it's yeah. still a small hole. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, or yeah. um, well, you could use a super pubic. You, you know, you can, you can try a few different ways. There's no. I'm sorry. And how do you normally get your specimen out mm-hmm. when you've done like a topic or a do yeah, through which port? Normally. It's simple, but got
2: yeah. Wait. yeah, if you've used a whole bunch of five mils, then you can use your five mil camera in one of the mm-hmm. smaller ports
0: mm-hmm.
1: and get it out the upper, I guess that's what we did mm-hmm. Yeah, there. yeah, that's good.
0: But
1: mm-hmm. and then you have one Oh yeah. Hmm. yeah. And then you kind of bring the bag out, and then you have this really awkward like <laughs> oh, yeah. using little oh, yeah. gobbits to try and yeah. pull it out bit by bit yeah. until it. Can
3: Eventually, and it ends up being the longest part of the Yeah, and pulling out and teeth and getting <laughs> and oh, you can do it that sneaky way that you do it. Yeah, yeah so, so, so on my fellowship, like I've stopped yeah. doing yeah. it now because really? <laughs> now <laughs> you it no, taste too long. So, oh. my, one of my old bosses, this Lamara, he used to use um, a 5mm camera and all 5mm ports. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it's like the 10cm, 15cm, like he'll always use the same thing and it's diamond configuration always um and to get the specimen out so it takes the it takes it out through the umbilicus. like the beauty of like a five mil scope is you can put it through any different any, any port and then you can see you can have a different view of the same thing so I would normally put the five mil scope through the super cubic port when it comes time for specimen removal like, you know we might hold the cyst up um, with one of the natural ports, and then he will Essentially, so take the final port out of the umbilicus and then get a pair of medicine bombs and just stretch to a sheep, like without making a bigger incision. And you can actually still put an endo catch bag through there, a 10 millimeter one, through the final. So that's what I used to do, Jess. But like Jess. Um, not with a port, like just literally just, just, through, just through the through yeah, 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 just yeah. through the hole. Yeah, so you put the bag through there, you put the specimen in, and then you spend the next, you know, hour trying to get the just doing. It well. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. it just fits the fits the bag. And uh-huh. because the bag is sort of soft and you know, it, it folds. Um, Do you don't lose your
1: hole? You don't
3: know. You don't know. You generally know. Yeah. So but then the disadvantage. so the advantage is that, you know, you just end up with the tiniest holes and then um, you know, they wouldn't know. But it just takes a lot longer. Um, and it's a bit of a faith too, if you, you know, if there's theatre <laughs> school are watching you and no. how long is it going to take and trying to shut out this dirt moisture here, through this tiny thing. Um, it's a little bit frustrating, so I've changed I've changed my tact and <laughs> I will just put a pubic port in, or like a 10 millimeter port to get it out through. But yeah, that's one way of doing it. And do you
1: think the pain in a 5mm port is a whole lot less than a 10 mil port? Be the
3: pain, pain, of ah, yeah, they don't actually, regardless of whether it's a 10 or a 5, they don't really have much pain. That's the beauty of it, I think. Yeah, yeah. it's a more the risk of herniation. Yeah, herniation, yeah. you don't have yeah. to suture it. Um, so if it's just five mil yeah. um, incisions, I'll just strip. I wouldn't even suture them generally. So, and, and they heal really well. So, yeah, there's advantages and disadvantages, but you'd have to be very patient, um, <laughs> to get it anyway. Um, cool. Uh, right. If it's very large, um, yeah, as I mentioned before, a left upper quadrant entry can be very useful. So I don't know. Whenever you're on call with me, and if you're doing it, possibly just doesn't matter. Like it, we don't have to go under like. Us. Just tell me you want to do a Palmer's point entry, and we can do that. Cool. Yeah. Just to, and I think the main reason is um, we need. You know there will be times when it will be very useful like if you've got a you know seriously ruptured ectopic pregnancy and these liters of blood in there you used to want to do laparoscopic but you know if you put um you know Hassan's going to take a long time maybe or putting a various needle through the umbilicus you're just going to get blood back and it's not going to be very reassuring um then palmers were just quite kind of useful then as well so basically for every laparoscopy I ask for an OGT or an NGT before or at the time of intubation and most med are very happy to give you that and then you've got that option there if you have to use it and then if you're comfortable using it then you can just use it just like any other entry um, and that's just a really good skill to have I think just having an alternative side of entry um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a left upper quadrant either it could be like paramedian um, so uh, earlier this year, I had a laparoscopic hysterectomy for this person who was BMI 45 and she had like an umbilical mesh repair and she had a whole host of medical problems. And so I was worried that with an open operation, she might not survive or she could have, you know, complications, you know, long term. Anyways, I was quite keen to do it laparoscopically and so I ended up putting. Um, the main camera port slightly to the left of the Alha avoiding the mesh site. So, I mean, it still meant that you had to repair it, make sure she doesn't get another like, herniation, but um, you can put your ports anywhere as long as it's safe and you're missing vital structures. <laughs> yeah, um, And especially if it's a very large cyst, then um, the ancillary ports will obviously need to be higher for you to operate um, in the region of interest. Um, so, if it's out of the pelvis, if it's in the abdomen, um, often what I would do is have a left upper quadrant camera port, which is what Debbie was doing on Monday, um, and then use the umbilicus as one of the operating ports, rather than for the camera, and then the other <coughs> ports might need to be like a lumbar port or like a higher
0: port for you to do the operation.
3: So um, I don't know, whether, do you want to just come around here? and um, so I haven't got any videos today, um, but this is one of the ones that we did earlier this year. So you can see the uterus there and you've got this dermoid. It measured out to be about 10 and it ended up being about 12 and she had bilateral dermoids. Mm. Um, so yeah, just same thing you'd normally do. So like monopolar hook or make a, an incision into the capsule, shut it out and put it in the bag and take it out. But yeah, this this time we didn't put it in the bag to rupture it. But there would be an option that you would have. Um, put it into a bag and then rupture.
2: Does it get more fiddly when you rupture it in the bag and then you're going to try and shell it out in the bag? In that
3: yeah, bag? that basically means you don't have an assistant because your assistant is it's holding the, the camera bag. in the bag. Mm. So you, you'd you have mm. to do it yourself. But oh, I don't think Possibly. so. No, it's, mm. yeah, it's definitely doable. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and then... But I'll just give a, an example of a recent mass. Um, so this is a case that we did on Acutes on Monday. So this lady was 25. Um, she gave birth her first baby 18 days prior. She had a seven centimetre leptinexal simple cyst diagnosed in pregnancy. Um, and then I think it was just conservatively managed, They like, didn't do anything about that. Went, um, went home and then came back in with like one so one week history of abdominal pain.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, Duncan did a portable ultrasound scan in ED, and then it was like 30 centimeters, <laughs> and it was simple. Um, and she had acute pain, so she got a CT, chest, uh, CT after a CT abdomen, pelvis, um, and it showed like a 29 to 30 centimeter unilocular cyst in the abdomen and pelvis, basically filling the whole abdomen, and she basically looked quite pregnant. Um, CA 1 to 5 was 200 and something, but I was quite reassured that it had been there since, you know, the beginning of the pregnancy, it looked simple, it had just grown quite large in size. So what Debbie and I did, um, we did a palm point entry and had a look with a 5mm port, and basically there was like this giant cyst, um, and there was some spillage there already. So we sucked out 1.2 litres that was in the pelvis. And then <coughs> we made another hole, um, a controlled hole into the cyst, and drained like seven and a half litres wow. of kind of murky, kind of watery fluid. Um, so much. Yeah, it was huge. You a like i it hadn't already
2: spilled, mm. did you know, the a purse string shit to try and contain Yeah,
3: so that's one way of doing it. Mm. The other way of doing it is, um, you know, just your striker sucker, such, mm. such a irrigator, put it um, quite. Um, put it sort of 90, so perpendicular to the cysts and quite firmly on that, and then you can touch the sucker with your monopolar hook. Oh. Just a like, very quick burst of, um, mm. mostly I'll use cut, mm. just quick burst so that it just goes in and it's just the exact um, diameter yes. of the sucker mm. so there's minimal spillage. And then once the sucker is in um, and the hole is tiny, um, you just suck away. Mm. Yeah, And just be conscious that your sucker's not touching
1: yeah
3: yeah that's that's exactly right so you have to make sure that there's no bowel in the way there's um other structures that could be harmed by the by the energy source um so you sort of, you do what is i i think easiest for you so with this one um even getting the ports in was a bit challenged to start off with because of the sheer size of it mm-hmm. so the camera port and um, it came up pretty much right to the just below the right upper quadrant port and so what what else could you do like so you've put the camera you can see this thing <laughs> and it's not ruptured but you worry that you might put a punch a hole through if you have put ports in where you can't really see where you need to go what could you do what could you ask the tools to do to get oh, yeah. Yeah, get up, yeah, tilting the bed from side to side. Obviously, make sure they're well tucked mm-hmm. in. Um, so if you if you want a bean bag, it a bit more useful. But you know, for a smaller person, if they're tucked in with pillow slip, they can still get tilted. Yeah, if you So that's what we did. So we tilted from side to side to put the ports in. Um, yeah. So it was quite large, and so she did have a partial oophorectomy. So. You know, with dealing with a large cyst, um, peeling it off laparoscopically would take a bloody long time. <laughs> so we lopped it off, um, but then left about, probably about eight centimeters of ovary, like a laid open ovary. So she still had ovary and tissue. And then once the main part of the cyst and ovary was lopped off, um, we peeled off the cyst wall from the remaining ovary. And then we sutured the ovary back up with our string 3O monocryl. Um, yeah, and she went on day one post up um, after getting her chlamydia treated, <laughs> which was picked up on admission. <laughs> oh, so
1: not any pregnancy? No, no, no. <sighs> no yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the cytology's already back, and it was just um, mesothelial reactive cells, and nothing nasty as we expected. Okay, this is giant mess number two. Um, so who are Michelle's gone back home, eh? So mm. we did this case with Michelle and Lulu. So this lady was a 36-year-old um, lawyer who had a one-year history of abdominal pain and distension. Went to see a few GPs. They said she was bloated and to work out more. She was probably BMI 20. <laughs> so she had been boxing and doing all sorts of things because she was feeling quite bloated. Um, and then she paid for her own ultrasound scan in the community, and it showed. A super large ovarian, or there's an ovarian cyst. Um, so then that's how she got referred in to our service, um, and then she was booked uh, for an ovarian cystectomy, and then they talked about unilateral you know, salpingo-oophorectomy because it was quite large, um, and it was basically filling up. It was similar size to
0: um,
3: that other case. So then um, as things go, um, she was booked on the acute list on a Tuesday, but ran out of Operating time, so I couldn't get it done, and so I got handed over to this patient at 3 p.m. Went and saw her, and I thought, oh, it's, it's quite large. Um, often the size on ultrasound scan for this size, this would be inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and it had been there for a bit, bit of a, you know, a while. I was a bit anxious that it could be something, up, you know, something else. So we went a chest, abdomen, pelvis CT, and um, the tumor markers were very normal. Um, and then basically, it was a six-centimeter abdominal pelvic cyst. They couldn't really tell whether where it was coming from, but they thought, was probably ovarian. Um, and it wasn't really simple either. It had. Um, I'll show you pictures later if we uh, if we have a bit of like the CT scan findings. Uh, but sort of on pe- on the imaging, um, it looked like she had. There was it was fleshy in part, and like almost like placental tissue. And it, was, it wasn't solid, but it was mostly cystic, but kind of irregular thickening on the walls. And mm-hmm. it just didn't look like anything we had seen before. Mm-hmm. So just because I, I do urinary catheters um, with reckless yes. abandon, <laughs> so you know, I thought you know, if it's going to end up, um, she was going to have a midline laparotomy. Um, and if it's very large, and if it's this weird tissue, I need to make sure where the ureters are. Um, so I consented for that and um, USO and pelvic washings. So,
1: can I just clarify, yes. Angela? So your decision to get a CT? Because yeah. that's not obviously something that had already been organised. No.
3: That was based on the size of the cyst. Size of the cyst, um, and a
0: little bit the nature of
3: the cool. nature. of Yeah. yeah so of on CT, it wasn't on ultrasound. It wasn't simple looking. Yeah. Um, it had sort of soft tissue parts. Mm-hmm. um it looked Mm -hmm. quite unusual Mm -hmm. um so i wanted a bit more information it was also also just a community scan might have even been a horizon scan i -hmm. I can't remember now but i just it wasn't enough information this person's obviously quite health literate as well Um, not that that changes Mm -hmm. with you know less literate people but Mm -hmm. she obviously sort of wanted things done properly Mm -hmm. as you would
1: and that would affect your decision to go
3: laparoscopic or laparotomy? No, I'm sure. No, she was always going to have a laparotomy. laparotomy. Yeah, she was always going always to do laparotomy because of the, the unusual appearance of yeah, the cyst. Yeah. Um, but I also thought, well, it could always be not ovarian. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be you, when it's that size. Um you don't really know where it might be coming from and it could be a penicill, it, um, it could be like from the kidneys, it could be retroperitoneal, you know, you, you don't know. Um, so I just wanted a bit more information. To be fair, um, the, what the CT was useful for was just the size of the cyst, but it wasn't useful for figuring out where it was coming from. Um, but yeah, we could, but there was no you know, metastases or any other masses elsewhere, so that was useful for that. So, we basically did a Zephysternum to superpubic laparotomy for this person, and I'll show you pictures soon. Really impressive. Um, so she had a retroperitoneal mass oh with normal ovaries, oh and God. the ureter, the right ureter was running on top of the mass. Basically, it was a retroperitoneal structure. The gon- gonadal vessels and the ureter was running on top of the mass. It was actually in the same retroperitoneal space. Um, normal ovaries, like so, it wasn't. It was very unusual. So we're like, oh, we haven't seen this one before. Yeah. <laughs> so we found out who the uncle urologist just was because, you know, we often think, okay, Richard could be like yeah. a really big kidney mass. Um, mm. Put the CT up, found out who the uncle surgeon was, and it was Richard Baber. Um, so he came really quickly and he came and was like, what is that? He <laughs> <laughs> hadn't seen one before, <laughs> but we did it together. So, um, Basically, we just shelled the cyst out whole um, by going into, first of all, we had to identify the and It was helpful to have the tube in there, because I think otherwise could've, we could have cut through that mm-hmm. because there was no way of knowing the kind of the spongy placenta-looking bits that also looked like ch- tubular, mm-hmm. kind of like a ureter, wow. so that was actually quite helpful in this case. Um, so we first of all did a right-sided ureterolysis. lysis. Um, and marked out the ureter with, you know, the vessel tie, vessel loop, mm. make sure we know exactly where that is, and then just systematically shut it out from the peritoneal space. And the ligature impact that we had open was very useful in terms of just, you know, quickly going through it. It's like um, a for open, ligature for open cases. Is it the, no, the, big no, it's the big one? or oh, the little one. No, the big one. Yeah, the oh, big okay, one. Okay, yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Okay. So, this was the mess. <gasps> So you can see like it's um so it was very spongy and wow. soft but then it had really unusual bits to it.
1: And it was coming from the uterus?
3: Yes yeah, so the more well, the main vascular pedicle was from, from the, the posterior uterus. surface of the uterus. How so, did it get oh, retro- so air? Yeah, Who right? knows how long she's soft, had it for yeah. um, and this is wow. basically oh. that's her normal ovaries and wow. uh, uterus and that's basically where it originated from. Wow. Who can guess what it, what it ended up being?
2: I, it kind of looks like fibroid, but
3: I don't know if it was. Yes, it was like a it's cellular leiomyoma. Whoa. Um, yeah. With, yeah, with, pick. with Yeah, well, just with degeneration. The coming from the um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, wow. yeah, so it ended up being a massive fibroid. Wow. Um, no, the only thing you I mean, think about
2: the way the broad ligament works. It's yeah.
3: Yeah. So, so. it's like
2: an extension of a broad ligament. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. A broad
3: ligament Board fibroid. Yeah. So. Extremely. Essentially, we think she might have had this for a long time and just not known about it. The only other time that I've seen like this sort of soft, spongy fibroid was on a uterus. We did a hysterectomy on her, and it was um the whole uterus was very spongy, sort of similar mm-hmm. texture. Yeah. Um, so, not the usual texture that you'd, re, you know, you'd expect for a,
2: mm.
3: a fibroid. It's
2: yeah. a, and it's benign, it's not. Benign, benign. yes. It's, it's,
3: oh, it was seven kilos. Oh, 7 kilograms? Yeah, 7 kilograms of... Wow.
2: She would have been stoked. Yeah. She yeah, would have been like, yes, box yeah, is working. Yeah. 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 yeah, so
3: she went from like 55 kilos to 50. Oh my goodness, she's <laughs> yeah. tiny. Yeah, she's so super tiny, tiny so I, I just don't know.
1: And did she have this big power? Did machine? she? Yeah. have But wow. I like, don't. Did
3: she have any super <laughs> right. right. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, I mean, it felt really quite scary, tense, yeah. but it was sort of taking up, kind of like, you know, the people that get pregnant with like a retroverted uterus yeah, you yeah, couldn't yeah. really tell. and um, mm-hmm. it just felt a bit fuller. Yeah. But yeah. even on her, it didn't On me, really, could you felt
2: that? Like did you could you, like whoever examined yeah, her, yeah. did they
3: Yeah, I did examine her. Normal. No. But,
2: like you couldn't feel it. No. What?
3: No. It was really interesting. Wow. So yeah, so just remember it's not always ovarian. So just think about <laughs> other things that it could be and just keep her really high, you know, index of suspicion and if you're not comfortable with it, organise through the imaging, talk to a friend, um, try and get as much information as possible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, that this was great. earlier this year, um, overnight they had a case of
1: somebody who um, was a couple of weeks postpartum mm-hmm. and had a nexel mass. On their obstetric imaging, and came in with what looked like acute torsion, and yeah. so we took them for laparotomy in the middle of the night, and it was the same. It was this big, which mm. mass, and they called the surgical which who was a uh, surgical boss who was mm. you know, at home who, under the and he just close out, and they mm. scanned her, and it was a big renal cancer. I think. Mm. cancer. I, mean, I, I think
3: it was benign. Um, was it? Benign, but it was. I it was a tumor. I think mm. it's got like pre, you know,
1: like, some kind of potential.
2: Mm. So
3: Watch, yeah, so you know, I mean we see ovarian cysts all the time and we get GP referrals for ovarian cysts all the time, so yeah, so, you know, common things occur commonly, but then these things can happen too. So there's only three well, other I mean, cases really... in the literature. Wow. Yeah, so we're writing wow. it up. Cool.
2: Yeah. That's cool. That's That's really awesome. Um, Cool. Good job you guys as well, like with the planning, you know, <laughs> it's really, it's, it sounds um, like it was really well planned. I was yeah, sort of,
3: just happy that um, yeah. we didn't know what this thing was and mm-hmm. the general surgeon didn't know either, but we sort of mm-hmm. to point 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 on to it onto yeah. it and ruptured it, yeah, it didn't rupture it, so that was good. Okay, so so if it's um, torsion, which is the other um, condition that we see quite often, ovarian torsion, everyone's seeing one? Yeah. Yeah. Done one? Yeah. So. Yeah, mainly, like, especially if they're childbearing age, um, untwist and observe, and most of the time, because it's mostly from venous congestion, as we know, it will regain its colour back. Um, So I'd I'd watch it fully for five, ten minutes to see whether it comes back, and most of the time it does, and then you leave it well alone. Um, And especially if they're, you know, pregnant, or if they've got lax round ligament and you know lax ligament um, you know really worthwhile doing a suspension procedure at the same time. Um, so if they're pregnant patients, um, first of all yeah do they actually need surgery. Um, for the lady from Monday who had a seven centimetre cyst I think you could you could argue I mean I probably I probably would have operated on her if it was seven centimeters. And she was early pregnancy when it was first picked up, because the best time to operate would be probably the second trimester and you know it carries risk of torsion, risk of rupture, you know things like that. So especially if it's complexist, then um, I think it's worthwhile removing when you first pick up. And you can see in the booking form you can sack pack her from your antenatal clinic um, as soon as it's picked up and try and operate you know early first trimester. 14 15 weeks is quite good. Um just yeah.
2: um logistically, have
3: we yeah. sorted out whether these women come here or go to MSC? Oh yeah, so they will be done middlemore yeah. most likely. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's we found that it's anaesthetist dependent. Yes. Um so there's no high to rules. I don't think they know either. Mm-mm. But most anaesthetists would not be comfortable with doing it there, mainly because of the post op considerations of monitoring the baby, you know, and things. Not that we would do anything mm. different at you know, second trimester, uh, all you do is listen to the fetal heart, and if there's any fetal concerns, then they might need to come across, uh, but then I think that it's the comfort levels, so... Middle. And in terms of waiting lists, you know, elective surgeries, is it
2: feasible to, you know, would it have to be an acute arranged procedure, or
0: is it the same, like, are they able to feasibly yeah. arranged for... Person yeah. to come in yeah, I mean, seven I mean, weeks later. From
3: yeah, there. yes. I mean, I would think, yeah, so.
1: Okay, sorry to disturb. Who's presenting? Call? Oh,
3: uh, yeah. Do you want to come and set up yeah. everyone's here. and be careful the yeah. paint? Thank you. Oh, yeah. yeah, so I think that's probably a bit of a unique position that we're in. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, for example, if they have ADHD, um, they'd probably get the seizure quite quickly. So I, I think it's not a reason not to do it. Oh, um, no, I agree. Yeah. It's just like wondering practically, yeah.
2: like, we saw someone in the HM climb from a book, them. we? Yeah. Do yeah. Like, do like email it? Michelle yeah, or something? something.
3: Yeah, you a semi-acute. Yeah, especially if they have to get it done at more anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, most thinking. of the time. Interesting. Yeah. An acute range. I think we are working on getting a acute range list for Gini. Oh, yeah. like a regular one, and that would be you know a, big a good big one. one. that yeah. be awful. Yeah, that would be totally yeah. yeah. and of course, it also depends on when they get referred to our service. You know, often people don't book until a lot, a lot later. Yeah, exactly. So that's probably the most common reason why we don't operate on these people, um, you know, when they're second trimester. Yeah, that's it. Um, yeah, so, yeah, optimal time, uh, yeah, second trimester, but it has been safely done even up until 34 weeks, laparoscopic. Open, you can just do it any time, of course, um, if you need to. Um, left lateral position just to reduce the AOC cable compression. Um, and once, if you're doing this laparoscopically, then um, try to operate at lower intra-abdominal pressures. So normally, for like pregnant women or bigger ladies um, who will, you know, who their nephesis will have quite a difficult time ventilating, I normally would operate at eight to ten millimeters of mercury. You can get a really good view. Um, you don't always have to go at 15. Um, or 12 which seem to be the standard Mm -hmm. you can go lower Um, and you can just you know when you when you're next operating just have a look for yourself and you know try to reduce your pressure the camera has the control button for insufflation Mm -hmm. you can do it yourself you can you don't have to ask nurses do you know what i'm talking about Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, it's in that menu yeah you you just go into the menu go into insufflator um and then you can reduce it down and just see for yourself you know you know what it looks like what the abdomen looks like at eight because mainly the 20 to 25 millimetres of mercury at insufflation is mainly to provide that safe distance between the structures and your ports with the pressure so you know basically you're just trying to create a co2 bubble to protect the organs but then once the ports are in unless you're using a lot of you know unless you're creating a lot of surgical plume or um, you're doing a lot of suction irrigation um yeah eight to ten is fine